Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Kings in chapter 8. That's on page 310, the Church Bible. 1 Kings in chapter 8. We still have a way to go in this chapter. It's a lengthy chapter, and it is a very valuable chapter with many things that we need to hear and listen and learn from. We're going to look at verses 30 through 53 this evening. Verse 30, 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon pleads, And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, And when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. 
And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy. And they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent. And make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive. Saying we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which you have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them for they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance. As you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord God. The day the temple was dedicated was a great day for the nation of Israel. After all the preparation that Solomon had undertaken, the years of building, the stones, the timbers, the gold, finally put together, and this wonderful dwelling place for God was built in Jerusalem. And then the ark was brought into the temple, and we read there that the glory of the Lord filled the house, so much so that the priests had to get out They could not stand in God's glorious presence. It was a new day. It was a new era for Israel. Surely, now with the coming of Solomon and the building then of the temple, surely now there would be endless blessing for Solomon and endless blessing for the nation of Israel. Solomon is taken up with the greatness of God, the glory of God, the faithfulness of God. He is prayed to the God who keeps covenant and mercy. The God who fulfills with his hand what he has spoken with his mouth. Surely the future then was secure for Israel, for Solomon. There will be no more clouds in the sky, no more dark shadows. Yet at the heart of this chapter, chapter 8, the bulk of the seven specific supplications in verses 31 to 53, we are faced with the reality of remaining sin. The stark realism of Solomon's prayer stands out, I would suggest to you. It is the presence of sin. He is concerned with the presence of sin. What happens when the God of glory, the God who dwells in the highest heavens, dwells with his people in the temple and they 
fall into sin in one way or another? How can God, as it were, in His glory, mingle with men and women who are there in their sin? This is a reality, this is a problem. And you find in most of the seven petitions, you have the presence of sin. There is a pattern here. When such and such a thing happens, and is invariably when they fall into sin, then he prays, hear from heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. There is the desire for forgiveness. For example, let me just outline for you these seven petitions so that you are clear as to the structure. The first is in verse 31, when anyone sins against his neighbour and is forced to take an oath. How are you going to deal with someone who may be swearing a false oath? Someone who is sinning. He calls upon God to distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. Then in verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you. Then he goes on, the same pattern. Hear, forgive. Again in verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Verse 37, when there is a famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew. And again, we must understand that those things came as curses on disobedience. The only case that does not involve sin is the case of the foreigner, who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, in verse 41. And I'm not going to comment very much on that this evening. And I'm not absolutely sure why it is here at this moment in time, in the heart of this prayer. I need to go back and do some more work in order to understand that, but we will notice later on in his prayer that he picks up in verse 60, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. But it lies right in the very heart of the prayer, but it is not to do with sin. And then, verse 44, when Israel goes out to battle against their enemies, hear and maintain their cause. And then in verse 46, the ultimate scenario of exile, when they sin against you, and you become angry with them, verse 46, and deliver them to the enemy. And they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near. And then there is an extended, the most extended, supplication that God will hear and forgive and restore. What we need to ask ourselves is this. Why did Solomon pray in this vein? Was it really necessary? Surely it cast a dark cloud over a day of great joy and gladness. Wasn't there an element of morbidness in his prayer? Solomon, you're so concerned now with sin. Some might say, well, here's a typical Old Testament prayer. We don't need to pray prayers like this under the New Covenant. We're in Christ. All our sins are forgiven by Christ. So what can we learn from this, if anything at all? Well, I would trust that you would by now understand that that is a very short-sighted approach and not a valid Bible approach to this passage at all. 
I would suggest to you that there are three reasons why Solomon prayed in this manner. There may be more, but I'm going to give you three. The first is this. He recognises that sin is always present. He recognises that sin is always present. Solomon is not so taken up with the greatness of the occasion so that he is blinded to realities. There is a sober-mindedness about Solomon, the king. There is an honesty. There is a candidness. There is an openness. The stark realism, sin, is characteristic still of men and women in this nation. He doesn't say, if someone should sin, but when. That's the reality. It's not going to be, well, it may or may not happen. It's going to happen. And there is the stark realism. God is glorious. God is holy. God dwells in the highest heavens. God has chosen and condescended to dwell among his people. But sin is a reality. It's there. It's going to break out again and again in the days to come. They are in God's presence. Verse 39 has it in brackets, but it's a very plain statement. You alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Solomon is not pretending here. He is saying, effectively, we cannot pretend that you, Lord, are someone else. We cannot pretend that you are someone other than you are. You know the hearts of all the sons of men. We can't conceal our sin from you. We can't pretend that things are other than they are. You are holy. And then in verse 46 there is another in brackets phrase. But again it is significant. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. It's not an aside. It's there. It's one of the realities. The reality is that God knows the hearts of all the sons of men. The other reality is that there is no one who does not sin. Sin is universal. And the same way as you cannot pretend that God is someone else other than he actually is, so he says, we cannot pretend that we are somebody else other than we are. We are sinful. God is holy. We are sinful. God knows all about us and all about our hearts. And sin is rampant. Sin is universal. That is the stark reality that lies at the heart of Solomon's prayer. He recognises it. He doesn't invent these things. He doesn't invent even these requests in the light of these realities. There is a heart and a mind that is informed by the word of God and by the law of Moses in particular. He is praying about situations that God has already addressed in the law of Moses. The thought that the nation might be defeated before their enemies is not a new idea. Droughts, famines, plagues, defeat in battle. God has spoken about those things before. There are two chapters and we cannot take time to look at them in any detail this evening. But the first is in Leviticus chapter 26. 
The other chapter is Deuteronomy chapter 28, where you have there the list of covenant curses for disobedience. What will happen if the nation of Israel sins, if they disobey the Lord and begin to turn away from Him, then these are the ways in which God will afflict them in order to bring them back to their senses and bring them back to Him. And Solomon knows that. And he does not deny that. He doesn't deny the truth and the reality of God's Word. Not only does he not deny that God is other than he is, or that men and women are other than they are, he does not deny God's word. There is the reality. It explains, it interprets. He's not making any of this up. Let me give you one of those, or one or two specific instances from Deuteronomy 28 to see that I'm not making it up either. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 15, we read there, A general introduction. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then, for example, in verse 23, speaks of the heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Drought. Severe drought. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. And that's the, whole, that's the whole vein that runs through Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. Solomon is aware of those things. And turning back now to 1 Kings and chapter 8, Solomon is also aware of the different aspects of sin. He uses carefully chosen words. We tend to have one word, sin. But in the Hebrew there are different words and they all have slightly different meanings. There are four words that he uses in his prayer for sin. Three of them are in verse 47. At the latter part of verse 47 he talks about we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. There are the three words. We've sinned, we've done wrong, we've committed wickedness. The words that he uses there are very important words. He says we've sinned. We have failed. Sin is failure. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is that bias which is away from God. So that you do not comply with God and with his word. You've missed it. You've missed out. You you may aim, but because of sin, you cannot take a straight aim. And you cannot attain. You miss the mark. But also he says we've done wrong. That is iniquity. Sin is not an accident. It's the result of a deliberate action on the part of a man or a woman. We are responsible. Iniquities are acts of disobedience. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. This is what he's talking about here. And then 
We've committed wickedness. God's law has set out the pattern, he says. God's law has set out the norm. We've not conformed to what is true, to what is right, to to what is pure. We have strayed, we have erred. There is a crookedness, there is a perverseness about our ways. And then in verse 50 there is another word. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. Transgressions in plain English is rebellion. Revolt against God. You see the different aspects of sin. It is failure before God. It is iniquity. That is disobedience before God. It is a crookedness. And it is rebellion. And Solomon says we're in the presence of God who knows the hearts, all the hearts of the sons of men. He says what are we going to do with these things? How can we handle What will God do with these failings, with these iniquities, with these transgressions, with this perverseness? Solomon says this is the reality. There is no one who does not sin. We're all tarred with the same brush. You, Lord, alone, you know the hearts of all the sons of men. We cannot hide away from these facts. As we do, we live in a world of make-believe. And Solomon refuses to live in such a world. And here at the heart of his prayer are these realities. Now before we go on, let me say this. You are aware, and you were probably one of those before you became a Christian. You turned everything round the other way. Sin is not real, you said. Sin is not really serious. Sin is not against God. Sin is something the religious people get all worked up about and feel guilty about. We don't want any of that. So we dismiss that. And people say, like they did in David's day, God doesn't see those things. God doesn't hear those things. God won't do anything about those things. And people go in so far and say, there is no God anyway. And that proves his make-believe, doesn't it? It's the delusion of our age, as it is the delusion of every age. Men have believed lies about God. Men have believed lies about themselves. They see no danger. They hear no alarm bells ringing. There is no sense in their own conscience that they are under the judgment of God, that they have sinned against heaven, that they have sinned against God. They've broken His laws. There's rebellion, there's revolt, there's wickedness, there's perversity. Men and women will not believe in Jesus Christ until they believe the truth about God and the truth about themselves. If there's anyone here this evening who is deluding themselves, may God open your eyes to see the reality of your sin before God. You can't pretend. If you do pretend, the day will soon come when you must stand before this God 
about whom we preach tonight. And then all your so-called make-believe, all your delusions will be shattered in an instant as you stand before the Holy God in all your sin. The best thing to do is to face the reality now. Solomon is doing that. Solomon is helping us to face that reality. So that is the first thing. That is one reason why Solomon prays in this way. He recognises that sin is always present. But there's a second reason. He also prays this way because Solomon desires the blessing of God on the people of God. Solomon is the chosen king of Israel. He's the leader of the nation. He's built the temple. Fulfilling the promise of God to David, his father. He is now spreading out his hands to heaven. Soon he will be on his knees, perhaps at the point where he is pleading for forgiveness for the people. He's facing the reality of sin and he's bringing it before God, before the entire representative congregation of Israel. And the God to whom he prays is the sovereign Lord who has redeemed Israel out of the land of Egypt. The Lord who has brought them into the land of Canaan. The Lord who has chosen David to be over his people Israel. And now the one who has appointed and chosen and loved Solomon and caused him to build this temple. The God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with his servants who walk before God with all their hearts. Verse 23. So what happens now when Israel sins? When they go on a different path? When they're no longer walking before God with all their hearts? Is everything lost? Does everything fall apart? Does everything come to a total end? Will the sin of Israel, will that bring an end to the blessing of God? Will God cease to be the God of his people? Will God then abandon them, be forced to abandon them and cut himself off from them because of their remaining sin? Solomon does not believe that will be the case. And Solomon desires the blessing of God upon this nation. If we come to the end of his prayer, his particular, this particular prayer in verse 51, to the end he is pleading there for forgiveness. And the basis on which he pleads is they are your people, they're your inheritance. You brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace, that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt. O Lord God, you feel the intensity of his pleading and his reasoning with God. He desires the blessing of God upon this people. They are the people of God. They are the people that God has redeemed. And Solomon is coming before God and he is interceding with God on their behalf. He is in earnest, pleading with God to hear and forgive and to restore the temple that he has built so that Israel and even strangers may come and pray towards this temple, God's chosen dwelling place. 
Solomon desires then the blessing of God to continue despite sin. And some may say, well that's wishful thinking, Solomon. Look at the history of the nation after your death. And people say, well, look what happened to you, Solomon, before you died. The nation went into exile ultimately. Drought, famine, pestilence, sword was the reality. They were defeated by their enemies. They were taken captive. Was it wishful thinking? That God would still bless his people? Was it a pipe dream? Did sin win the day? And wipe out the people of God? No. And Solomon knew that that would not be the case. For here is the third reason why he prayed. He not only had that sense of the reality of sin. He not only desired the blessing of God upon that people. But he also, and this is the most crucial thing, he knew that God would forgive those who turned back to God. He knew that. He was utterly convinced and persuaded. Look at his words. Look at his pleas again. For example, in verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. The same is found in verses 38 and 39. The same is found in the ultimate scenario of exile from verses 47 to 50. We will not take time to read through those verses again. But what we see here is that Solomon knows that God will forgive those who turn from their sins back to God. He is persuaded that God will hear, that God will restore, that God will then forgive. How did he know that? How was he so convinced? How could he pray this prayer? These are not empty words. He means what he says. He believes what he says. This is not make-believe any more than sin is make-believe. The fact that God will forgive is not make-believe. It lies at the very heart of his prayer, as it lies at the very heart of the Gospel, when he prays on the basis of God's promises. God has declared these things. If we look at the worst scenario, exile, verses 46 through to 50, that he pleads with God. Let me turn you back now to the other passage that he bases his prayer on in Le- 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 Leviticus chapter 26. For there in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 40, these are the words of God spoken through Moses. There is the promise of the curse, the threat of the curse. But then what happens when they fall into sin? Verse 40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, 
with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me. This is God speaking. And that they have also walked contrary to me. And that I have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. And later on he says, verse 44, the end, I am the Lord their God, and for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Do you see now why why Solomon pleads, this is the people whom you have redeemed. He pleads that because this is the people to whom God spoke and said, if you depart from me, it is not the end. If you depart from me, but if you will return to me and acknowledge your sin, then I will forgive you, I will restore you. I am your God and I am not about to leave you and abandon you. Even when you sin, there is hope for you if you will return and walk in the ways of God. You see, God keeps covenant and mercy with those who walk before him even though they have sinned, provided they return to walk in the ways of God, God will forgive. God will restore. God will bring down His blessing upon them. And what is that blessing ultimately? It is that God is their God and He will not abandon them. They remain His people. That is one of the most staggering things you find. We read this morning that horrific chapter, Ezekiel chapter 16, where Israel said, why has God been unfaithful to us? And God turns the tables upon them and afflicts them and says, you have been unfaithful to me. You have sold yourselves as harlots to the nations, to the gods of this world. And yet you read on in Ezekiel and what you find? That God extends mercy and calls them back and says he will restore them and forgive them that's what Solomon is praying about and you'll find another another great prayer in the, in the Old Testament in Daniel Daniel chapter 9 Daniel prays the very same things so and he's in exile like, like Ezekiel and Nehemiah does the same thing as well they plead these promises Solomon knew God would forgive those who turned back to God. And that's why he prayed in the way that he prayed. He knows the stark realities of God's holiness. He knows the awful stark realities of sin. He knows the warnings. He knows the threats. He knows the curses. But if that is all he knew, then he would be in despair. This would be no prayer at all. He also knows the promises of God to repentant, returning sinners. And he knows that this holy God is willing to forgive and to restore his blessing upon his people. And therefore he intercedes 
Therefore he pleads accordingly that God will hear and that God will forgive when sin takes place in the nation. In other words, he knows the grace of God. If sin is a stark reality, what then is the grace of God? That is not a stark reality. That is a wonderful reality. It's a gracious reality. The God who forgives, the God who restores, the God who brings blessing back upon a people if they will repent of their sin. You see, the stark reality of sin does not drive Solomon to hopelessness and to despair. Rather, it drives him to the God of grace, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who walk before the Lord with all of their heart. But, you see, there must be there must be that corresponding repentance, that turning back to God, that grief, that sorrow, that confession, that turning from sin to God and that new obedience. And that is what Solomon is pleading for. When Israel sins, Lord, bring them back. Grant them forgiveness. Pardon them. Cleanse them. Turn them back in the ways of truth that they may walk in your ways and know your blessing upon them. This is a, God, a prayer that is riddled with the gospel because God in Jesus Christ is the God who forgives through Jesus Christ. One greater than Solomon has now come. Solomon's prayer breathes the air of the gospel of Christ. It breathes divine forgiveness. But Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ certainly knew the harsh realities of sin. He knew it was failure. He knew it was disobedience. He knew it was wickedness. He knew it was rebellion. And the Bible tells us that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was without sin. But he became a man. He dwelt among us. He came into this world of sin to save us from our sins. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And yet he is among sinners. He comes in order to save us from our sins. There is no one without sin, says Solomon. God sends one from heaven. Without sin. The eternal Son of God. And He takes our nature. Without sin. Without sin. And He, far more than Solomon, desired the blessing of God upon the people. Upon those whom He had set His love upon from before the foundation of this world. And in order that blessing might become ours, He was made a curse. He was made sin. He who knew no sin was made sin. He did not merely intercede, did he, as Solomon did. Our great high priest laid down his life and was made a curse for us and redeemed us from the curse of the law. 
And what was the testimony that men and women gave of Christ when he was here upon earth? There were many things, but one of them was, this man receives sinners. Yeah, he receives sinners. And what was his testimony? He says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. To give them remission of sins. How can he do that? Because he was the Redeemer, who was to lay down his life. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul said, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. Jesus Christ came into the world, sinners, to save. This is the Gospel. Forgiveness. This is the blessing of God. The God who is holy, yet the God who keeps covenant and mercy. And how does he keep covenant and mercy with those who walk before him with all their hearts? It can only be through Christ who was without sin. Solomon understood that God was a God who forgave. God who restored. That is why he sent his son Jesus Christ. And we ought to magnify the God who hears our prayers and forgives you and forgives me our sins. He blots them out. It is as if they don't even exist. Why? Because Christ has taken them away. Isn't that our gospel? Isn't that what you believe? Isn't that why there is a deep-seated joy in your heart as you stand before God that you know that the finger of condemnation and that finger of eternal condemnation will never be pointed at you again because sin has been punished already in Jesus Christ instead of that condemnation there is the open door of heaven and it is wide open made wide open by Jesus Christ because he shed his blood. Now if those things are so, there are three things I want to ask by way of application. A number of questions we must ask. In the light of the fact that no one does not sin, Everyone is a sinner. In the light of the fact that God knows the hearts of all the sons of men, let me ask you a very pointed question, first of all. Do you know, do you experience, have you received the forgiveness of your sins from Jesus Christ? That is a very important question. You see, it is possible to be confused you see in the light of what we've said tonight God is a God who forgives and you say yes I know that God is a merciful God I know that God is a God who is willing to forgive sins I know that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to save sinners from their sins but did you know that there are men and women who, in hell who can say that how can that be are they not Christians no 
You may know those things and tell me those things and tell anybody else those things and believe those things. That God is merciful. That God is willing to forgive sinners. That Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners and still be in hell and still go to hell. Why do I say that? Because you overlook something which is vitally important. And it's here again and again and again in this prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. Those whom God forgives are those who turn back to God. They are those who repent of their sins. They are those who confess their sins, who acknowledge their guilt, who in the light of what it says in verse 38, each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple. You know, you're convinced, you're persuaded of your sin, that you are a failure, that you have disobeyed, that you are crooked, that you have revolted and rebelled against God. And until you acknowledge those things and go to him in that state and in that condition and cry to God for mercy and for forgiveness, There is no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness. Will God have those, as it were, into his heaven? Who say, well, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. You see, it's all very well to say God is merciful. But has God been merciful to you? Has he broken your hard heart? Has he smashed that heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh that cries out, Lord be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. God will forgive those who humble themselves. Those who confess their sin. Those who cry to God conscious of their sin. Give me Jesus Christ or else I die. I perish. I'm done for. I'm finished. I have no hope. There can be no mercy. There can be no forgiveness without you forsaking sin. Let the wicked forsake his way, said that gospel prophet Isaiah. Let the unrighteous man forsake his ways. And let him return to the Lord, for the Lord will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. But who will he abundantly pardon? The man who forsakes his wicked ways. Therefore I urge you, if you have not yet come to Christ in all your sin, confessing your sin, then come now, come tonight. Leave it not a day longer. Come as a sinner to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ receives sinners. Jesus Christ saves sinners. They're the only ones he saves. Not those who say God doesn't see, God doesn't hear. Not those who think that they have no need of repentance, no need of confession. But those who say, Lord, I'm finished. I'm finished. I have no leg to stand on. Unless you are merciful to me. Forgive me. Pardon me. Cleanse me. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. That's the first question. The second question I would ask is this.
as a Christian now? What steps are you taking in your life to deal with the stark realities of remaining sin? Remaining ongoing sin. Remaining ongoing particular sins. Is there ongoing confession? Ongoing repentance? Ongoing renewed daily forgiveness through the blood of Christ? Do you say, Lord, not just sin in general, but Lord, the evil of this particular sin? That was David's confession. In Psalm 51. Not sin in general, but this particular evil that I committed. Forgive me, pardon me, cleanse me. If we confess our sins, says John, then God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. As if we confess. If we confess and confess our particular sins. You see what Solomon does? Does he deal with particular situations? Isn't it with sin in general? He's dealing with seven instances. Five certainly, if not six of them, are concerned with particular sin. Particular scenarios, situations that have brought the judgment of God upon the nation. And he's, he's, he's confessed them, acknowledged them, repent of them. Do you think it's wrong as a Christian to mourn for sin? What's the first beatitude? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's not wrong to mourn as a Christian. It's right to mourn for your sin, but not in despair. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. They face the reality of their sin, and they found forgiveness. That's the comfort that God's blessing rests upon you, sinner though you are, ongoing sinner that you are. God says that he will bless the brokenhearted, the contrite heart. The man, the woman, trembles at his word, sensitive to sin, weeps, grieves over sin. It's all too possible to become insensitive, to become inflexible. Hardness of heart that ignores, that pretends that sin isn't what it really is. Stony hearts are not sensitive. It is the blood of Christ alone that can soften our hard hearts and make us tender to tremble at God's word. We will heed the warnings. We will take refuge in the promises of God and return to God and find full free pardon for all our sins then the third and final thing is this it is true that no one is free from sin and it is true that God knows the hearts of all of the sons of men then let me speak a word of application and exhortation to those of you who are particularly heads of households and parents. Here in Solomon's prayer there is a clear direction in duty, in the way that you pray, in the way that you instruct and lead. Solomon was not praying simply for himself. Solomon was the king. Solomon was the shepherd 
over God's own people. He was concerned for them. He was concerned lest sin should cut them off. He sinned. His family sinned. The nation sinned. And when you live your life, you sin. Your family sin. Your wife sins. Your children sin. Solomon is a pattern for us here. Solomon is the mouthpiece of God's people in the light of the stark reality of sin. And just as Job prayed for his children regularly, even though they were adults, maybe my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So Solomon prayed for the people of God when they sinned. There was no falsehood on the part of Job, no falsehood on the part of Solomon, no wishful thinking, no blind sentimentalism. By that I mean people who say, parents who say, oh, but, you know, they're just children. And they're they're our children. And, you know, they can do no wrong, can they? That's blind sentimentalism. That's not Solomon, that's not Job-like leadership. That's folly. Solomon is not blind to those realities. He's not an ostrich who's burying his head in the sand. He's not standing there saying, well, I hope these things don't actually happen, or if they do happen, I hope they'll just somehow go away and disappear off the scene. No, this man believed God's word. He believed the threats. He believed the promises. He faced the realities. He believed in the God who had redeemed his people as a God who forgave and restored. And in the light of all those things, he exercised headship and leadership. Do you not think, are you not persuaded that a greater part of your being, the head of your home, of being a father and a leader in your home, and of being a mother to your children, is to spread out your hands before God as you plead for your family. When my family sin, when my children sin, when I sin, when they sin, when my wife sins, when my children sin, Lord, will you not hear from heaven? Will you not grant to us repentance? Will you not hear us? Will you not forgive us? Isn't that one of the greater parts of exercising headship in your home. And it means then that you must show your children, fathers, mothers, you must show your children their sin. Not just in a general way, but their specific sins. They will lie. They will cheat. You say, my child doesn't do those things. Well, I don't know what child you have. I had four. And then you had a lie and then you had a cheat. Not all the time, but they knew how to do it. And I didn't teach them. Where did all those unkind words come from their lips? I hate you. Where did that temper come from? See, this, this is the thing we're dealing with. When they kick the door, stamp their feet up the stairs. That's what we're talking about. Particular sins. Fathers, mothers, you've got to deal with those things. You've got to instruct your children the ways of repentance. You've got to believe that God is who he says he is. 
and impress that upon your children and impress the reality of sin, the reality of the holiness of God and the reality of repentance and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And you must exercise that as Solomon did. You pray privately. You pray publicly. Solomon's praying publicly. See, he's real, he's genuine. And that's what you must be. But to be real and to be genuine, you've got to face reality. The realities of sin and the realities of God in his grace and in his mercy. Your children will not just pick up the grace of God automatically. They need to be taught by example and by precept and principle. And as they see you above all and hear you above all pouring out your heart in prayer to God. They may overhear you privately, but they certainly need to hear you publicly as you lead in family devotions and worship. These are some of the things then that we learn from Solomon. I say again, whatever his failings may have been, in the latter years of his life, there is no doubting the sincerity and the earnestness and the reality of this prayer. It is one of the great prayers of the Old Testament Scriptures. May God write these lessons on our hearts. Amen. Amen. Lord, what can we say to you in the light of your word? We owe everything that we have to your grace, your willingness to receive repentant sinners, your willingness to wash us clean in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and to say, your sins are forgiven. Blessed be your name, O God. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus Christ, forever and forever. Amen. Amen.